0: This church was one of the first ones that helped send uh, Christina and me to the mission field uh, to Suriname 14 years ago, 2006, and that's an awesome testimony. We've seen some amazing things since then, and so I get to share with you about a couple of those this morning. While I'm talking, they're going to go ahead and show some slides. They're just going to advance those about every 20 seconds, and when it gets to the last slide, Uh, We've got a social distancing prayer card. So what you can do is you can take out your phone and you can take a picture of what's up there at the end and it'll show you a little address. If you'd like to sign up for our email newsletter or have any other kind of communication with us, that gives you a great way to do that. So that'll be at the end of that. And they'll just go ahead and advance those. Wesley, can you bring up the, the backpack? We've gotten to work in so many different areas of missions and every one of those brings testimonies out of it. Um, but the focus of our ministry ends up being Bible education. Now, that's probably not the most exciting name that you've ever heard for missions work, is it? So, okay, well, what we do is we talk about it a little bit more, and in order to do that, let's go ahead and turn this around and see what we can get out of the backpack. See, step one in Bible education, we found out, is getting the right things into the person's backpack. If you want them to be trained, if you want them to be a good pastor, you've got to get some good stuff in there. And I brought along a few of those. If you hit a really difficult obstacle, it probably helps to have some way to get over some of those tough obstacles. I'll just leave a couple of those down there. Um, if you are facing really rocky terrain, then it helps to have some shoes to go across with that. I'll explain that one in just a minute. My kids help me pack my backpack. <laughs> and this one might be important, wouldn't it? Maybe, maybe a Bible as part of helping somebody get ready to minister to other people. Okay, well, let's talk about both of those for a second. Um, This one we're going to use to represent the Holy Spirit. I know it's not exactly a dove, but in South America, what we tend to see more are birds that look a little bit like this. So you can stretch it a little bit with me, and we'll pretend that this represents the Holy Spirit and uh, God's Word. And so one of the first questions we ask is, what kind of Christian would it make us if we said... I've got one of those two things in my backpack, but not the other one. What if I've got God's Word in my backpack, but I don't have the Holy Spirit? What kind of Christian would that make me? Well, it would make us Christians who talk about how God did awesome things 2,000 years ago. It would make us the kind of Christians that like to talk about ideas about God, but maybe we're not talking as much about what God's doing in our lives today. Well, what if we go to the other extreme and say, hey, we've got the Holy Spirit. And so what do we need to be paying attention to God's word for? And so we kind of go to that other extreme. And Jesus corrects us so simply when he says, My sheep know my my voice. And you guys know it already. My sheep know my voice. So if we want to be ready to follow his voice and to know which is his voice and which are other voices speaking, where do we learn that? Where do we hear that? Well, we've got an amazing testimony of God's voice written down as he spoke through people that were inspired by this same Holy Spirit. And so if we know his voice here, then we're ready to recognize his voice when he speaks to us today. And the result of that is a faith that's not just about what happened 2,000 years ago. It's a faith that talks about God is doing the same things, the same kinds of things today as he was before, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I love that part, getting to talk about putting the right things in the backpack. And so those are two of the most important, the two most important things that we get into the backpack. And along that, we focus on 15 other intensive weeks of training that we do with somebody. So after we get them there, um, would, is there anybody else, maybe somebody from the youth group or something like that, that would be comfortable if you want to put on a mask and come up or however you feel comfortable doing it, to help me out with an illustration for a second. Okay, thank you so much. She's coming up. Don't stop. Come on all the way up. Oh, she's got one for you. Okay, so we've got step one. Step one was, did you catch it? Get the right things in the backpack. Okay, you got step one. Step two, and we're going to stay pretty close here. Can you put the backpack on for a second? Step two is take a guided journey. This journey is going to be much shorter than it normally is. Normally we would take a lap around the church to kind of remind you of some of the things that used to happen a long time ago in Pentecostal churches, Um, but we'll make this a very short lap. Hey, I know the way. You want to follow me? Okay. Let's go on a journey. You made it. Yeah, that was it, because we're standing in front of the camera. Um, (laughs) But the point of that is, if you've got somebody that's got a little bit more experience in ministry and somebody that's got a little bit less experience in ministry and you match those two people up, then somebody that knows a lot about one specific subject can help the other person get to know more about that and become even better prepared uh, far beyond just what some book knowledge or some reading, uh, getting into actual experience. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Okay, so that's step one and step two. Step one, get the right things in the backpack. Step two, take a guided journey. Any guesses what step three is? Is it enough for us just to send missionaries from the United States to other countries? Or do, were they given the Great Commission also? Yes. God give them the Great Commission also. And so step three is where you get to pick anybody else that you want out of the youth group. And you get to hand the backpack off to them. And you put the right things in their backpack. And you take them on a guided journey. Who do you want to pick? Anybody you want? Uh, (laughs) All right. Okay, so I'm going to take a step back. You hand the backpack off to him. And since you know the way already, take the same guided journey. I love that t-shirt, by the way. You're guiding you know the way, and that's a simple illustration. But that helps to get the point across that the most important part of this whole process in Bible education is the handoff, where somebody else actually becomes the leader instead of me. Thank you guys so much for helping me with that. Appreciate your help. Me. So as we're talking about that, uh, I'll give you a couple more illustrations. And we're probably getting to the point where it's repeating some of those same things. So let me tell you one story that helps you understand how this works. I met a pastor. His name is Esteban. He lives in Bolivia, South America. He pastors a church of about 150 people. For 15 intensive weeks, spread out over several years, he got together. He received training about the Bible, about the Holy Spirit. He also went to Step 2 because he wanted to be trained in marriage counseling, crisis counseling. That's not something I know about. So we matched him up with a lady who is 70 years old. She's about to retire from missions. And she poured her knowledge, 25 years of experience in pastoral counseling. She poured that into him And he was able to deepen his learning of that. And then comes step three. Pastor Esteban doesn't have the money from his church in Bolivia to take a trip to another country. He doesn't have the money to be a missionary himself. So we took up an offering for him. We bought his plane ticket, and we gave him an offering for going for a week, and he went to Venezuela. It was an awesome trip. He got to minister the first year to 34 pastors. They were so excited about it that the second year he came back and taught another subject, and they had 56 pastors the second year. And so he was able to take that far beyond what I was able to do. Now, the Holy Spirit can be in two places at once, but that's not something that I can do as a missionary. And the closest I can come to that is through Bible education. Because right now, as I'm sharing with you, there are pastors and preachers and teachers in the countries of Suriname, Mexico, Bolivia, Chile, Dominican Republic, and a list of others that I've been able to pour into, and today they're ministering to other people um, because your church and other churches like yours sent me to help them do that. Thank you so much for being involved in those three steps in Bible education. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. You probably saw the picture up there too. Um, we're an adoptive family. Uh, that's just an amazing opportunity that God gave us. Uh, our children joined us from Suriname in South America and from Colombia, also in South America. And so we've got four kids. Uh, just under two years ago, the youngest three joined us. And so we're still really kind of in that adjustment phase and getting used to all that. But it's an amazing and awesome opportunity uh, to pour into their lives and to see them start to develop with that. So 2 Kings chapter 5, I'll just read a couple of verses here. Um, If you can keep it open, that would probably be a good idea because you may be able to read on with some of the rest of the story beyond where I get. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but what did he have? He had leprosy. He had an incurable disease in their time. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So if you'll join me in asking a missionary question of this story, I think this is the most important mission story in the entire Old Testament. And the way that we're going to get to that story, the way that we're going to get to that is to ask who were the people that God used in the story of Naaman to help him find his way toward God. Because at the beginning of this story, he's not a part of God's people. He doesn't know anything about the one true God. And God uses a series of people to get him there. So who's the first one that God uses? We just read about it in these first three verses. I think I heard somebody say it. It's the young servant girl. So is this the person that we would expect for God to use at the beginning of one of the most amazing mission stories in the whole Bible? Did she have a lot of money to give to missions? No. In fact, she had zero to give to missions in terms of money. Did she have a lot of authority? Maybe she could tell people what to do and get things going that way. Could she do that in her household as a A servant in the household? Absolutely not. So what was it that this young girl did that was so amazing that she actually got things started and began directing Naaman toward finding God? All she did was she opened her mouth and she talked about how amazing God is. She talked about the God that she knew. Maybe she had heard some amazing testimonies, some amazing stories about him. And so as she shared that story, Naaman got excited. He had hope for the first time in his entire life. He realized maybe there is hope. Maybe this isn't an incurable condition. Maybe God can help with that. So he got excited because he started hearing the truth about God. When I hear that story, um, I think about a moment in missions that Christy and I got to share when we began ministering to Latin American women who were victims Of human trafficking. They had been lied to. um, In some cases, they had money stolen from them. And all of those factors contributed to trapping them in a lifestyle of prostitution. And for a year and a half, we got to meet every Wednesday afternoon and we got to share the gospel with them. And after about six months, we had gotten to know them a little bit. I never went without Christy there. I think you got to see a picture of that a little bit before. And uh, we asked them, What could we do to help you? And they said, we can't find Spanish Bibles here in Suriname where we are because this is a Dutch-speaking country. It's really hard to find Spanish-speaking Bibles. And so we took up an offering. Uh, It was actually a church here in the Kansas City area that gave a $500 offering to buy a box of 20 Spanish Bibles. And we ordered them. We had to wait several weeks to get them in. And when we got to share those, I don't know if you like opening up a brand-new book when you peel the plastic off and it's like, Walking into a bookstore where you're just you're hit by those smells of the fresh paper and the ink. and I personally I love that smell. and we opened up that box and we got to hand out Bibles that were brand new wrapped in plastic and they were so grateful. Uh, many of the women cried as we shared those gifts with them and Christy was always busy every week trying to think of what other kinds of gifts she wrote Bible verses for them on their birthdays and uh, turned them into a Uh, just kind of a dedication with a plaque that she could give to them. It was something they could keep and remember. And uh, a few months later, one of the ladies came back, and she had the Bible that we had given her, and it was in her hands, and it was starting to look pretty rough. In fact, when she walked in, the cover was slipping off to such a point that the Bible actually dropped out of the inside of its cover, and some of the pages started to scatter on the ground. And she saw us looking at her, and she... It almost like she felt guilty, and so she looked at us and said, please don't misunderstand, I'm taking as good a care of this Bible as I can, but I've been reading it every day. And so we understood at that moment that even though the condition of her Bible was getting worse, God was doing something amazing, even though we couldn't see as much from the outside, God was doing something amazing on the inside because it was the first time that she had heard God's word, and she had received God's word. And that's the story that I think of when I think of that moment of Naaman hearing for the first time in his entire life that there was hope, that there was a way out, that there was a path that could lead to deliverance through God. And that encourages me. When we keep reading the story of Naaman, he gets excited, he goes to Israel, And we find the person that we would think would be the most powerful for missions. We find the king of the entire nation of Israel. Okay, let's ask those same two questions that we asked about the young girl. Does he have a lot of money? Yes. Does he have a lot of authority? Can he tell people what to do? Does God use him in missions in reaching Naaman? No. Again, it seems like the wrong answer, doesn't it? This king, when he hears about the challenge of reaching Naaman, he says, that's too hard. That's too difficult. That's not something I can do. And so he actually tears his kingly garments. He's so upset. He's so frustrated about this. It seems like an impossible situation. So God has to raise up somebody else. Who does God use as the second person to keep leading Naaman toward what he needs to do? Okay, some of you may have read a little bit further along in the story. Okay, I'll give you a hint. It's a person that's paying attention to two things. He's paying attention to God's word, and he's listening to the voice of his spirit. Who is that second person that God uses in the story of Naaman? His name starts with Prophet Elisha. You got there. Prophet Elisha is the second person. Now, this is probably the one that we would expect the most, right? God uses Elisha. Awesome. Maybe not in the way we would expect. Elisha doesn't come out and do some kind of grand ceremony uh, like in some of the other encounters that we see in the Old Testament. All he does is just says, Naaman, you've got to go and dip seven times in the river. And he doesn't even tell him in person. He sends his servant to, to send the message. So he's so focused on God's word and on God's spirit that he's just spending time in prayer. He's focusing on God. He doesn't even come out to meet Naaman but God uses that. God uses a person who's paying attention to his word and to his spirit, and the work continues. Naaman, when he hears those instructions, is he excited about this opportunity? He's like, yes, it's so easy. I thought it was going to be difficult. It's so easy. He gets to the edge of the river, and he's ready to turn around and go back home because he's frustrated. This doesn't meet his expectations because he's coming from a completely different worldview. He he sees the world differently than a person who believes in God already. And when I think about that, when I think about somebody seeing the world differently, I think about, uh, we'll call him Daniel. He's in a a country whose name I shouldn't mention on this uh, video. Daniel was 19 years old. He'd grown up in an atheist family. If there was one thing that he believed with all his heart, this was in Latin America, with all his heart he believed that God did not exist. And at 19 years of age he found out that his family had kept a little Gideon New Testament hidden in their house for his entire life. And he was so mad, he was so frustrated, he thought his family were hypocrites. How could they keep that hidden? And so he grabbed that Bible and he walked out because he was looking for a way to destroy it. He was looking around. What can I do to get rid of this? I've got to get it out of my house. But as he walked his curiosity overcame his frustration and he began to open those words of the Bible and he began to read and it just broke his heart to the point that he couldn't sleep that night or the following night or the third night or the fourth night. He shared this testimony with me in person. And after four nights without sleep, he was walking down the streets of his city and he heard a church service playing, kind of like we were playing the worship music this morning, and he heard that music coming out. And it drew him, and so he walked in, he sat on the back pew of the church, he listened to the message, and when the message was done, he walked forward and he gave his heart to Jesus. It was hard for him, it was difficult for him, because he did not believe the same things about God that we already know when we have been reading the Bible. It was a a hard shift for him. Pastor Daniel is one of those people, one of the 650 people that I've gotten to work with in training and pouring step one and step two, I got to work with step two on him. I got to coach him on how to teach people in his country about the Old Testament and sharing even from this same story of Naaman. So Naaman gets through the young servant girl's encouragement. He gets the encouragement from the prophet Elisha. He gets told to go and dip 39 times in the river. Did I get it right? How many times? Seven times in the river. Thank you. He gets the instructions to go and dip seven times in the river. He goes. He looks at the dirty river water. He says, the rivers in my country are way nicer. And if you're the kind of person who grew up in a different place and moved to some place else, maybe you've got that kind of nostalgia. You say, well, where I was from is just better or something like that. It's just kind of normal human behavior. Um, And so he's ready to turn around and go back home. Well, sometimes if I share this message in a youth group, we actually measure it out. How long do you think it takes to dip seven times in a river? Does it take a long time to do that? Well, we measured it out. We come out with an answer usually somewhere between seven and ten seconds. So Naaman is, let's say, ten seconds. He's ten seconds away from being healed of an incurable disease. He's ten seconds away from having such a life-changing encounter with God that he would actually commit to worship the one true God for the rest of his life. He's ten seconds away from that, and he's ready to turn around and go back home, even though the young servant girl had already encouraged him, even though the prophet of God had already encouraged him. So who are the, the third group of people that stand up and encourage him in order for him to finish his journey and finally meet God? It's his servants, it's the group of people that accompanied him from his own country, And so these are just faithful people. These are hardworking people. Not necessarily, these aren't religious leaders of any kind. These are just people that say, uh, they encourage him. They care about him. And they say, you've got to keep seeking God. And even if it's just something easy, you need to go ahead and do that. And so he receives the encouragement. And we know what happens as a result of that. Does he get healed? Yes. Yes. Does he find God? Yes. And I know that story is true because it's in the Bible. It was a supernatural healing. I also know that story is true because when Christy and I visited this church last time, Pastor actually reminded me of it this morning, she was dealing with an incurable disease. She had celiac disease. She was reacting to every single meal of bread or of pasta and there's a whole list of ingredients that goes along with it. In fact, it wipes out about 90% of the foods that we're used to eating. And she just she struggled with this. And so the first clue that God gave us was what it was. We found out that it was celiac disease. And so she started avoiding all those foods. And she got it down to where she only had a really bad reaction about every two weeks. You Do you remember what she reacts to? She reacts to bread, right? So we walked into communion service Sunday about six weeks after we've gotten to Suriname, communion service Sunday, there's two things in her hand. One of them's the bread, one of them's the communion cup, and she looks down. I look over, standing next to her. I know that if she eats that little chunk of bread, it's going to make her sick for the next 24 to 48 hours because of the way her body reacts to it. There's no medicine to cure this. Uh, There's no treatment for it. The only option is to just avoid that food. And so she looks at that, And that morning, God speaks to her heart and says, this time it won't make you sick. So she goes ahead and takes the communion. And I look over at her. And then three days later, she says, Dave, I think God healed me. I'm ready for pizza. Because pizza used to be like a sickness sandwich for her. Every layer of the pizza contained something that she would react to because of celiac. The cheese has some coloring or something that she might react to. The bread is, of course, horrible for her. And I was all enthusiastic until she took the first bite of pizza. And then I looked over, and my stomach got sick because I had been so trained by the last two years. And it wasn't a lack of faith. It wasn't me doubting God. It was This was just how I had been trained to react. I wanted to protect her and so it, it was like a conflict for me to watch her put something in her mouth that I knew had made her sick for the lo- those last two years. It didn't make her sick that time. I won't tell you how many slices of pizza she ate that on that occasion. Um, but to this day, she has never again had another reaction to wheat or to gluten. So I know that these stories are true, and I know that his spirit is still at work. What about Naaman? When he was standing there at the river, was the prophet of God next to him? No. Was the young servant girl next to him? So, who was there with him? God's Spirit was there with Naaman, wherever he was, because he's present everywhere in the world. God's Spirit was there, just waiting, just looking, saying, who's going to respond? Who's going to turn toward God? And who's going to take advantage of this opportunity? And he did, and he responded at that moment. And to just wrap this story up, I want to close by making a connection with what you're doing in missions in this church because I see every one of you in one of those three roles. I see some of you, like that young servant girl who didn't feel like she had any money to give to missions, no authority, nobody to tell to go do something, But she did what she could. She talked about how awesome God was. And by doing that very, very simple thing, God began to draw somebody else to God that needed to come to God. And so maybe if you've thought to yourself, I don't really have a place to play in missions because I don't have money to give to it or I I don't have a, a spiritual role in the church, I want you to know that God wants you involved in this process. He wants to use you in missions. Because that servant girl, if you take her out of this story, does Naaman get healed at the end of this story? If you remove that young servant girl? And I want you to know the same thing. If you remove yourself from God's mission's work, there may be people that will never be reached. Because it doesn't depend on your capacity. It doesn't depend on what you have to give. The thing that God wants the most is simply just you. He wants to use you. In whatever way he wants. Well, the second one, the second person, the prophet of God, usually we think of the pastor, Pastor Denny. We think of the the missions board or the spiritual leadership of the church. Well, that's probably the easiest one to figure out, isn't it? If we remove that from the church, does missions happen in this church? No? It's absolutely vital. That part's got to be there, of course. That part's clear. But what about that third group? What about that group of just those, those faithful people, hardworking people, uh, people that maybe don't have a specific spiritual leadership role, but they're the kind of people that Naaman, in his story, he could tell them what to do and he didn't even have to go check. And maybe you've got some people like that in your church, Pastor Denny. They're people that when you ask them to do something, you don't even have to go check that it's gotten done because just by asking them, you know, okay, it's covered. It's taken care of. You treasure people like that. And I want you to know that even if you don't have a spiritual role or a spiritual title in this church, that you also, just like that group of faithful people with Naaman, you are absolutely important to missions. Because if you are removed from that story of Naaman, does Naaman get healed? If you remove those encouragers when he was 10 seconds away and ready to turn around and ready to go back home, If you remove that last group of people, does Naaman get healed in that story? And the answer is no. God wants to use every single one of us in this church for his purposes. For what he wants to do.